Welcome to the Time Machine Talk Show. Here's your host, Miss Ziegler. Welcome back, students, to the Time Machine Talk Show. This is your host, Miss Ziegler, here. And today we're going to discuss a little bit more about the Neolithic Revolution before we go on to the civilizations. So I would like you to turn in your Ways of the World Strayer textbook to page 28. This is where you should have read a little bit about the similarities and common patterns of the Neolithic Revolution throughout the world. One thing that I want you to take note of here is that the Neolithic Revolution is happening separately around the world, but it's happening roughly around the same time frame, which historians have debated many different questions about that. And you see here on page 28, it says uh, in the first paragraph, why was the agricultural revolution so late in the history of humankind? What was unique about the period after 10,000 BCE that may have triggered or facilitated this vast upheaval? Is what or in what different ways did the agricultural revolution take shape in various locations? How did it spread? And what was the impact? So as we're discussing this, I want you to take specific notes on similarities and differences in the developments of the Neolithic Revolution. Common patterns is just another way of saying similarities. So in this section on page 28 and 29, that's what the textbook is going to discuss. So I want to pull your attention to page 29 and you will look at the second paragraph, or no, I'm sorry, the first paragraph talks about climate change. This is the first similarity that kind of makes agricultural possible in new areas. And people start to migrate across the planet as a result of this warming of the climate. So that would be your first similarity that I would write down. The second one is new technology. If you look on page 29 in the second paragraph, about middle of the way through. It talks about how the people in the Middle East had developed sickles for cutting, newly available wild grain, baskets to carry it, mortars and pestles to remove the husk, and storage pits to preserve it. If you don't know what some of that stuff is, I would encourage you to Google a picture. The mortars and pestles are kind of like a, a grinder in a way, and then a sickles, a sickles are kind of... Um, used for cutting down and harvesting. So check out those pictures so you know what that's talking about. And then as we go on, it says, people of the Amazon and elsewhere had learned to cut back some plants to encourage the growth of their favorites. Native Australians had built elaborate traps in which they could capture, store, and harvest large number of eels. So you see that all of this technology is gonna start moving the Neolithic Revolution forward and enable them to have surplus of food, which we talked about in the last episode of Time Machine Talk Show. If you turn your page to page 30 and 31, you see a map of the world and you can see what crops are available in what sections, as well as uh, some of the domesticated animals that are available there as well. And this will kind of help you see how different places had different resources. We also talked about that in the last episode. And then on page 32, it kind of just wraps up the similarities by talking again about the climate conditions and new technology. Those are your two biggest similarities between um, the different parts of the world concerning the Neolithic Revolution. 
Now let's go on to differences. Another word for that is variations. So on page 32 in that section, that's what it's going to talk about. So let's look on page 32 at the second paragraph. It says, this new way of life initially operated everywhere with a simple technology, the digging stick or hoe. Plows were developed much later, but the several transitions to this hoe-based agriculture, commonly known as horticulture, varied considerably, depending on what plants and animals were available locally. For example, potatoes were found in the Andes region, but not in Africa or Asia. Wheat and wild pigs existed in the Fertile Crescent, but not in the Americas. Furthermore, of the world's 200,000 plant species, only several hundred have been domesticated, and in more recent centuries, just five of these, wheat, corn, rice, barley, and sorghum, have supplied more than half the calories to sustain human life. Only a 14 species of large mammals have been successfully domesticated, of which sheep, pigs, goats, cattle, and horses have been the most important. Because they are stubborn, nervous, solitary, or finicky, many animals simply cannot be readily domesticated. Thus, the kind of agricultural revolution that unfolded in particular places depended very much on what happened to be available locally. In short, it depended on sheer luck. We also talked a little bit about this in the last episode where I mentioned Jared Diamond's germs, guns, and steel theory. If you have a chance, check it out on YouTube. National Geographic has put out videos on this. The second episode is probably the best one that explains this theory, and it talks exactly about that, that it was just kind of luck that certain civilizations had different things in order to be able to progress faster. Let's check the second paragraph. It says, among the most favored areas and the first to experience a full agricultural revolution was the Fertile Crescent, an area sometimes known as Southwest Asia, consisting of present-day Iraq, Syria, Israel, Palestine, Jordan, and southern Turkey. In this region, an extraordinary variety of wild plants and animals capable of domestication provided a rich array of species on which the now largely settled gathering and hunting people could draw. And if you look on page 33, it has a map of the Fertile Crescent. Let's continue. What triggered the transition to agriculture remains a much debated question. Some have argued that a cold and dry spell between 11,000 and 9,500 BCE, a very rapid but temporary interruption in the general process of global, global warming, was the stimulus for the transition to farming. Larger settled populations now threatened with the loss of the wild plants and animals on which they had come to depend found a solution in domestication, either during or soon after this cold and dry period passed. Figs were apparently the first cultivated crop dating to about 9400 BCE. In the millennium or so that followed, wheat, barley, rye, peas, lentils, sheep, goats, pigs, and cattle all came under human control, providing the foundation for the world's first agricultural societies. Okay, now we're gonna skip ahead a little bit. On page 33, the second paragraph starts, at roughly the same time, or perhaps a little bit later, another process of domestication was unfolding on the African continent in the eastern part of what is now the Sahara in present-day Sudan. So this is going to compare what's going on in the Fertile Crescent with what is going on in Africa. Let's continue. Between 10,000 and 5,000 years ago, scholars tell us that there was no desert in this region, which received more rainfall than currently had extensive grassland vegetation and was relatively hospitable to human life. 
It seems likely that cattle were domesticated in this region about a thousand years before they were separately brought under human control in the Middle East and India. At about the same time, the donkey was also domesticated in northeastern Africa near the Red Sea and spread from there into southwest Asia, even as the practice of raising sheep and goats moved in the other direction. In terms of farming, the African pattern again was somewhat different. Unlike the Fertile Crescent, where a number of plants were domesticated in a small area, Sub-Saharan Africa witnessed the emergence of several widely scattered farming practices. Sorghum, which grows well in arid conditions, was the first grain to be tamed in the Eastern Sahara region. In the highlands of Ethiopia, teff, a tiny, highly nutritious grain, as well as enset, a relative of the banana, came under cultiva cultivation. In the fostered region of West Africa, yams, oil palm trees, okra, and the cola nut used as a flavoring for cola drinks emerged as important crops. The scattered location of these domestications generated a less productive agriculture than in the more favored and compact Fertile Crescent. But a number of African domesticates, sorghum, castor beans, gourds, millet, the donkey, subsequently spread to enrich the agricultural practices of Eurasian peoples. So basically what all that is saying is that the Fertile Crescent happens in a much smaller compact area, whereas in Africa it was spread out and there were several different crops that were being domesticated. So that's one of the differences between the two. Also, at the very uh, last sentence, it says that eventually these agricultural practices will spread to Eurasian people. Eurasian simply means Europe and Asia. Okay, so anybody that's in that area would have eventually gotten some of these agricultural products. All right, moving on to the next paragraph, it talks about the Americas. It says, yet another pattern of agricultural development took shape in the Americas. Like the agricultural revolution in Africa, the domestication of plants in the Americas occurred separately in a number of locations. In the coastal Andean regions of Western South America, in Mesoamerica, in the Mississippi River, River Valley, and perhaps in the Amazon Basin, surely the most distinctive common feature of these regions was relative absence of animals that could be domesticated. We also talked about that in the first episode. Remember I told you that they didn't have any large animals to be domesticated. Of the 14 major species of large mammals that had been brought under human control, just two, the llama and the alpaca, existed in Western Hemisphere, and only in the Andes region, where they proved enormously useful for food, fiber, and transportation. Without goats, sheep, pig, cattle, or horses, the people of the Americas lacked sources of protein, manure for fertilizer, and power to draw plows or pull carts, for example, that were widely available to societies in Afro-Eurasian world. Because they could not depend on domesticated animals for meat, many agricultural peoples in the Americas relied more on hunting and fishing than did people in Eastern Hemisphere. Europe, too, lacked most of the animals that could be readily domesticated, but it was geographically closer to areas that had them and so could borrow from neighboring regions. Farmers in the Americas could not. So that's a very important part of development and a very big difference. If you're asked between how the Neolithic Revolution differed in Europe or Asia compared to the Americas, that's a big key. You can talk about that. And in a similarities and difference essay, 
you would discuss it just the way they've written it here. You would talk about how in the Americas, they didn't have the large mammals that could be domesticated the way that Europe and Asia did. You could even give specific examples and talk about the llama and the alpaca, but explain that the llama and alpaca were not beast of burden. That means that they couldn't be used to pull a plow. They were only good for transportation, food, and fiber. Now, if we read on, we have another really key difference between the Americas and Afro-Eurasia. So let's go on to the next paragraph. It says, while the Americas lacked the cereal grains that were widely available in Afro-Eurasia, they had maize or corn first domesticated in southern Mexico by 4,000 to 3,000 BCE. Unlike the cereal grains of the Fertile Crescent, which closely resemble their wild predecessors, the ancestor of corn, a mountain grass called... Hmm, Tia Sinti, there we go, looks nothing like what we now know as corner maize. Thousands of years of selective adaption were required to develop a sufficiently large cob and a number of kernels to sustain a productive agriculture. Then I want you to take note of this next sentence. It says thus, while Middle Eastern societies quite rapidly replaced their gathering and hunting economy with agriculture, that process took several thousands of years in Mesoamerica. Beyond maize, Native American farmers domesticated squash, beans, potatoes, sunflowers, quinoa, pigweed, and goosefoot, which were harvested on a large scale. So things just took longer in the Americas. They didn't have the domesticated animals. They didn't have the access to the different tools that Europeans had. Big, huge difference between the two places. And another difference in the next paragraph is the unfolding of the agricultural revolution lay in the north and south uh, orientation of Americas, which required agricultural practices to move through and adapt to quite distinct climatic and vegetarian, uh, sorry, vegetation zones if they were to spread. The east and west axis of North Africa and Eurasia meant that agricultural innovations could spread more rapidly because they were entering roughly similar, similar environments. What you need to do is flip back in your textbook to page 30 and check out the world map here. If you look at North America and South America, you will see that if crops and technology move from north to south, they're not going to stay in the same line of latitude. And that's what the textbook is talking about here. If they move to a different line of latitude, what changes? Climate, vegetation, a lot of things change, right? So necessarily what is going to grow in Mesoamerica might not grow in the Amazon River Valley because the climate is different, the seasons are different. What would grow in Eastern North America might not grow in the Andean region, okay? So things can't um, progress and switch as quickly as what they can say in Eurasia. Now, if you go over to the other side of the map on, it's like right in the middle of page 30 and 31, you'll see the Fertile Crescent. The Fertile Crescent lies about on the same lines of latitude as some of Northern Africa and some of Eurasia. And so when those things spread, the technologies and the crops spread from east to west, somewhat of the same crops and animals are going to be able to survive because the climate is going to be similar. And Jared Diamond talks a lot about that in his Germs, Guns, and Steel Theory. 
It's the same thing that's being described here. If you have any questions about that, please email me or come by the learning commons and I will explain it to you on a map because it's a very important uh, factor as to why things didn't spread as easily in the Americas as they did in Eurasia. All right, moving on in your textbook, if you finish this chapter, you'll come across the explanation of pastoral societies, agricultural village societies, and chiefdoms, and the differences between all of those societies. In the next episode, I will be talking to you about early civilization, so tune in for that one, and let me know if you have any questions about what we've just talked about. Thank you so much for listening. Have an awesome day.